Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Well, the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus be with all of you gathered here in the sanctuary, in the Family Life Center, and those who are uh, leaning into this time of worship from home. I'm going to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be in chapter 6 in just a moment, but as you turn there, let me offer a simple word of yieldedness on behalf of all of us as we seek to be transformed by the wisdom of God's word and the presence of God's spirit among us. Let's pray together. Come, Holy Spirit, our hearts inspire and fill us with your holy fire. For if you are with us, then then nothing else matters. But if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. We pray these things in the name of the Christ who is in and among us this very moment. Amen. So today we continue in our ongoing series, The Cruciform Way. We're in part number six now. We've been making our way through 1 Corinthians And we've been listening to Paul, who's concerned because there's a church at Corinth. And the church is being so influenced by the standards and the the norms and the practices, kind of the ethos of the culture around them, that there seems at times to be more of Corinth in the church than Christ in the church. There seems to be more of culture seeping into the soil of the church at Corinth than there is the cross So Paul holds up the image of the cross and says, everything that you are and everything that you do is informed and shaped by, it's defined by the cross of Christ. In fact, you all know, he would say to the Corinthians as he would say to us, you all know that the cross has provided an assurance for eternal life after death, but here's the trouble. In the series that I've been preaching, my message has been this. More than an assurance of eternal life after death, the cross of Jesus is a clarion call to a way of life before death. The Christian is intended to live a cross-focused, cross-centered, cross-shaped life. And everything that we think and do is influenced by and shaped by, defined by, informed and transformed by the cross of Jesus. And so far in this series, we've covered a lot of ground. We began with what I called the scandal of the cross because here's the truth. The message of the cross, well, it sounds like foolishness to those who think they are wise. 
And the message of the cross, well, it looks like weakness to those who think that they are strong. We, we consider the reality that if you choose to follow Jesus and conform to this way of life called the cruciform way, then the reality is you are to be counted among the company of fools who have followed behind you, who have gone ahead of you, rather. Because who in the right mind would define strength as found in weakness? Who in the right mind, if they want to find their life, would choose to lose it? Who in the world but besides fools would be those who define winning as those who have laid down their lives? And we talked on Mother's Day about scars, didn't we? And we talked about the reality is the cruciform-shaped life is the life that is not ashamed of our scars, but we see our scars and our woundedness as the places where God's grace has never let go of us. And we called ourselves to be vulnerable and show our scars to the world as the place where we get to testify to God's goodness and grace. And we talked about an augmented reality. We talked about seeing the world through the lens of the cross means everything looks upside down. And everything that was up is down and all that was down is now up. And we talked about having the mind of Christ in us who although we may have access to power, we relinquish it for the sake of those who do not. And then last week, Pastor David brought what I think was a fantastic message called cruciform judgment about having the courage to allow God to examine your innermost places where you are in need of transformation. And today we continue in this theme because now we make it to a new part of the first, of the first letter to the Corinthians, a new section. You might even call it an, a new unit. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 go together and they, they address what Paul is concerned about in terms of how the Corinthians are shaping their ethical lives. It's about ethics about choices that they are making. And in the same way, he's going to say that, well, you can choose to shape your ethical standards by the culture around you, or you can define your ethic by the cross of Jesus. And in particular, chapters 5, 6, and 7 focus primarily on the ethic of sexual behavior. What does it mean to think of sex and our sexual behaviors as having been shaped by the cross of Jesus. So in chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, we hear these words. Paul says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say. Yeah, but, but not everything is beneficial. Well, I have the right to do anything, but, but I will not be mastered by anything. So you say food for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy them both. But the, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body, 
By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he has raised us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself to a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his, their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So visitors, welcome to Johns Creek Baptist Church. <laughs> Where, you know, we talk about sex. You know, every week we talk about, just kidding. We don't, but, but we do <laughs> talk about things matter. One of our core values is congregational courage. That means we sometimes have difficult conversations because we think they matter. And among the many things that matter these days, I can't think of many more important and more urgent in our sex-saturated society than to ask ourselves the important cruciform question, how do those who have shaped their lives after the cross think about our bodies? And how do we think about our sexuality? How do we think about the reality that we are created as sexual beings made to live in the joy and celebration of sex within the boundaries God has established with the cross as our lens? That's what I want to talk about for just a minute. But before we do, I want to tell you two things. There are two disclaimers I need to put out in front of us. Two things that need to be said before other things are said. Two disclaimers, right? Partially to help frame the conversation that we're about to have or the, the, the message I'm about to deliver. And secondly, to help you save your time from emailing me all week long about this sermon. First disclaimer. I don't know many people who like to talk about sex, okay? But those who do certainly don't want to talk about it at church. So let's just admit for just a moment there can be an awkwardness about the topic. Even we who are designed as sexual beings, it's a little bit like the little girl who went out to the backyard because her dad's back there and she goes to her dad and says, Daddy, uh, what is sex? And he was a little caught off guard, but he thought, oh my gosh, it's kind of early to be having this conversation. But if she's old enough to ask the question, she's old enough to deserve an honest answer. So they sat down and had a long conversation about the birds and the bees, and he told her how everything works. He unraveled the mysteries of this thing, and by the end, her eyes were wide open, and her jaw had hit the floor. And he said, well, honey, why, why did you ask me about that today? And she said, because... Mommy said to tell you that supper will be ready in, a few, in just a few secs. <laughs> it can be awkward. 
for a number of reasons to talk about sex and sexuality and sexual behavior and our bodies. But it's more than just awkwardness. It's because it's difficult because this, this topic is riddled by, saturated by all kinds of guilt. This topic, riddled by all kinds of shame, is heavy laden by all kinds of woundedness and even abuse and deep and profound injury and, and regret. But if you will trust me for just a moment or two, I believe that there is some strength to be gained by holding before us the word of God and allowing the Holy Spirit of God to do in us what only the Holy Spirit can do. So disclaimer number one, this is not a message of shame and guilt. To further deepen your own sense of awkwardness about this topic, it's a message of hope and grace and forgiveness and wholeness and beauty. Yeah. Disclaimer number two, this message is not about homosexuality. Now, in this text you heard just a moment ago, there's one line in there that talks about men lying with men. But the Greek in that text is so complex that it's not 100% agreed upon by scholars exactly what that particular verse means. In some places, it's interpreted to mean all of homosexuality in, in all its totality is what it's talking about. And others have translated this phrase and these Greek words to mean not homosexuality in general, but homosexual behavior, because neither Paul nor any of the biblical writers knew anything at all about homosexual orientation. So some have translated it to mean homosexuality in general. Some have translated it to mean homosexual behaviors. Others translate it, even in your Bibles, it may not even say it the way I read it. It may say male prostitutes. And in some places, there is much reason to believe that this phrase is addressing not what you and I think of when we think of homosexuality, but rather a practice that was common in the Greco-Roman world, which is men who are married to women who choose to lie with young boys, apprentices who work for them. And there's even an overtone of sexual trafficking involved when you take this phrase and see where it's used in other places in Scripture and in the wider Greek world. Because of those complexities alone, you realize we could be here all week talking about that one verse. But I believe that Paul is up to something bigger than that one topic. I believe that there is a sweep in this text that we just read because we could drill down on what it means to not be drunkards or to be greedy or to be carousers or any other of the words that are in here. But there's another reason, disclaimer, that I want to make sure you know this is not a sermon about homosexuality and it's because of this. We do this all the time. We come to a text that has a lot of conviction about behaviors that need to be checked, questioned, examined, repented of, and we find the behavior that doesn't apply to us, and we say, yep, that's it. Let's focus and hyper-focus. Let's concentrate on this one part, and that allows us to keep at an arm's distance. Well, any place in our own interior world that needs to be transformed, examined, repented of, 
But I believe that Paul is up to speaking to all of us here. So this message, whether you are gay, straight, married, single, active, or celibate, there is a word for all of us here. And I want to put the sentence, I want to put the sermon in one sentence right here at the very heart of launching into this text. And this one sentence is the whole sermon. But it doesn't mean once I say this sentence you can get up and leave. There's more unpacking to do. But here is my sermon in a sentence. The cross informs every decision we make and transforms every regret we have. I just want you to leave that on the screen for a moment. I want you to just marinate in that truth for just a moment. Say la. Just let it hang there for a minute. The cross informs every decision we make, and it transforms every regret that we have. Now, that statement can be applied to everything in our lives. But I say today, especially in regard to understanding the ethic of our sexual behavior, the cross transforms every sexual decision that we make. And the cross transforms every sexual regret that we have. Now we're going to take this sentence and divide it into two. The first part, it informs every decision that we make. So in Corinth, you know the situation by now because we've been studying this for a few weeks. Corinth was a city that was cutthroat in nature. It was competitive. They were competing and climbing and contending, comparing themselves to each other. And they were so self-boasting that the ego was on display in Corinth at all times. And among the many sins of excess was the sin of sexual immorality. I mean, there are stories told of men who would lie down with uh, their stepmothers, which on the one hand is, of course, a sin. On the other hand, just, yeah. I mean, come on. There were stories about temple prostitutes. Temple prostitutes who were used... Uh, by not just Corinthians around the church, but by members of the church. There are stories about human trafficking of little girls and little boys for a sex trade that still in parts of the world continues to this day. And Paul is anxious because he realizes there's nothing to be surprised about in most cities like Corinth. There's all that's going to go on. But what caused him anxiety is the people in the church were beginning to blur the edges of their own boundary lines and were participating in the same behaviors. And Paul speaks to them about it, but they have a theological reason. They have justified everything they're doing from theological perspectives. For example... These are people who, uh, not quite yet, Graham. These are people who, who believe that because of the cross of Jesus, they have grace. And grace is a good thing. And grace sets you free. But they believed because they were set free, well, no longer. The good news is you don't have to be circumcised anymore. You don't have to follow that Old Testament law. Well, you don't have to follow the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. That's for sure. And that's good news. That's freedom, grace. So their assumption was, well, if we're getting rid of all the Old Testament covenant restrictions, the, the Levitical code of behavior, then we can also get rid of all the bodily ethics that we were taught in the Old Covenant. They assumed that they were free to practice anything. So they hit 
Paul, with well-known phrases, common expressions of the day, this is one of them, I have the right to do anything, which if I didn't tell you any better, you would think that that was like off of somebody's Twitter account today. I mean, right? But that was a common belief. I have the right to do anything. Another phrase that they would use is food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. They're using this as a way to justify the reality that we're not held by these old standards that we used to be. We're free. Why can't we just be free? It doesn't that, isn't that what it means to be in grace? And Paul says, no. I mean, your body matters now. If you're in Christ, your body in some ways matters more now than even before you came to Christ. Because in your body, your material body, you have the capacity to glorify the Christ who has redeemed the world. And you have the capacity to dishonor Christ who has redeemed the world. So he talks to them in this passage we read a moment ago about the physicality of the crucifixion and resurrection. That Christ had a body that was crucified and a body that was raised from the dead. And there's a reason for that. If God wanted to save the world simply spiritually, God would have chosen to do it another way. But God chose to send his son to die a physical death in order to redeem the physical world. I mean, the world of matter and carbon, where I'm talking about every subatomic particle, uh, every cell that is racing through your body, every skin cell. I'm talking about your sweat, your hair, your spit, your blood, all that makes you human. Christ died not simply to save you spiritually, but to reconcile and redeem all of creation and all of the matter within it. In other words, matter matters. And in the cross, Christ was attempting to redeem a brand new humanity, not so that we can just leave this place and live in heaven one day, but so that in this new heaven and this new earth, we might be a new humanity who knows something about how to use our bodies, our physical bodies, to glorify God, not in just the way we serve and the way we love, but also in the way that we use our bodies sexually. That there are ways that you and I can glorify God within particular boundaries. And he, and he hits him with this again and again. There's a reason Christ died physically because your body is what connects you to the resurrection. The problem is the Corinthians struggled with the same problem that we struggle with. And that is we often, without thinking about it, practice a disembodied faith. A disembodied faith. Where you go to church and you do the thing at church. You do the church stuff, you pray, you sing, you, you, you listen to sermons, you do the songs, and it's spiritual. And you separate your spiritual life here, but then you leave and you live your normal, routine, physical, um, tangible life outside of church and there's no connection. A disembodied faith is one that says, I go to church to do Jesus, but when I leave, I got real life. And the truth is to live the cruciform way means that we come to church, yes, to be transformed, to be empowered, to worship, to to deepen in Christ. But unless your faith in Christ is found to be expressed in the way you do business, the way you do commerce, the way that you place your sports, the way that you act on the field, the way that you talk in the golf cart, the the subjects that you bring up when you're at the gym with your, your bros, there are things in normal, real, physical, material life where the cross matters more there 
than simply in the spirit. Does that make sense? So the disembodied life continued about a century or two later. Second century, there are these heresies that come up. Because in the second, third century, our forebearers in the faith are trying to figure out, well, who was Jesus? Was he God or was he a person? And they have all these debates and they have these councils to try to decide if Jesus was God or was he a man. And, and in the debate that ensued, the conflicts, the fights that ensued, one group of folks known as the docetists, the docetists believed, well, maybe Jesus, you know, hmm, I know he was God, but God can't be crucified, so therefore maybe he was just kind of human. So maybe he just seemed to have a body. Well, those who were in conflict with that line of thought said, well, if he just seemed to have a body, well, then he just seemed to be crucified. And if he just seemed to be crucified, he just seemed to be raised. And if he just seemed to be raised, you just seemed to be saved. But in reality, he was crucified so that in our physical, tangible, recognizable world, we are connected to the life of the divine. So Paul says, your bodies are what connect you to the resurrection. Because we say that Christ is risen, risen indeed. He is indeed risen. But if Christ be risen, he is only risen in the lives of those who call him Lord. He's not just walking around independently somewhere without some body. The risen Christ is in you. The risen aliveness of Christ is in, is in me. We just are barely awake to it most of the time. This is why Paul said, do you not know that your, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? You and I host the power of God's divine presence in this world. I love what Teresa of Avila said about it in her famous prayer. I've used it many times because it just rings true. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. And you ask me, well, what in the world does that have to do with sex? Just this. If Christ has no body on earth but yours, then what you do with your bodies matters. What you do with your body matters. Do you see what Paul is attempting to do here? He's not just coming to the Corinthians and saying, hey, hey now, behave. He's not just coming to say, hey, you knock that off, you stop that, you behave, hey, quit. He is doing a lot of that. <laughs> But you know what else he's doing? More than that. Higher, deeper, wider than that. Paul is coming to Corinth and he's lifting up from the miry clay of degradation and, and dis, dis, distortion a brand new way to reimagine our bodies as glorious expressions of the resurrection itself. And if our bodies are glorious expressions of the resurrection itself, can you imagine what an impact it would be on our sexual behaviors and our sexual mindset if we recognized that our bodies are expressions of the divine and risen Christ. Can you imagine what would happen if we could actually take that body ethic into our Christian marriages and into even our Christian bedrooms, or living room or kitchen or wherever, you know, you get my point, where 
there is the opportunity through sexual beings that we are to live up to and into the fullness of what God had in mind when God created sex in the first place, a holy celebration of divine love that, guess what, we get to share. Paul is lifting up a brand new way to think about the body and everything that you do with the body. In other words, the cross informs every sexual decision that we make. Amen? Now, the truth of the matter is you and I both know that not every decision that we make glorifies God. And those decisions that we make that don't glorify God, especially with our body, can leave us with deep, deep, profound regret. I meet people all the time who carry around regret like a, like a hundred pound weight around their heart. And I know that some of you in this room or in this moment know what I'm talking about. And you regret things that you've done or things that you've said or things that you've viewed or whatever. You know you are culpable and you have this deep regret you carry around. And some of you carry around a regret not because of something that you've done, but maybe something was done to you and you regret not saying something about it, not asking for help. Maybe there was a time where you had an opportunity to get out of the relationship, but for some reason you stayed in it, and you regret what it did to the kids and what it did to the family and what it did to work and the business. And, and we carry regret like this around, like baggage. It's like a shadow that follows us no matter where we go. And no matter what we do, we can't seem to escape the shadow, right? And what you do with unresolved regret is regret turns into shame, and shame turns into self-hate. And self-hate turns into other-centered hate. And you know what happens with hurting people? Hurting people hurt people. Or the way I like to say it is pain that's not transformed is transferred. Some of the meanest people I know are people who are simply transferring the pain that has never been transformed in them. And Paul says, in the cross, your pain can be transformed. So at the beginning of this passage that we read just a moment ago, remember what he did? He has this long list of vices and behaviors that don't glorify God, but he follows it up with this amazing, this amazing word of grace. Listen to what he says in verse nine. And that is what some of you were, used to be, those are the conditions formerly known as you, <laughs> past tense. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And I know if you're new to church life, those are kind of churchy words. You're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. Sound very churchy, don't they? But those are baptismal words. Washed. When we get into baptismal, we... We go under the water to signify the death, a dying to an old way of existing, and then you come out of the water to signify a rising up to a new way of life. And Paul says, those were the things that, yes, you still regret, but those were the things you used to be, and you are no longer defined by them. You're washed. The question I have for you is, are you? 
Because if you're in Christ, you are. But it requires a couple of other churchy words. We use the words like confession and repentance. And confession simply means coming to a place where you realize I have this regret and I finally admit it. I have blown it. It was me, Lord, no one else. And I am sorry for what I have done. In Scripture, we're told in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins, each and every one, or all of your sins, all your unrighteousness. The word in Greek is hina, which means each and every single one, if you confess it. And I like to say that sometimes when we want to try to live without regret, it requires a confession, yes, to God, where God forgives you and you're washed, you're sanctified. Sanctified is just a churchy word that means you're made holy. And I know when you replay the tape in your mind about the thing you did or maybe the thing you didn't do and you're feeling regret about it, the truth is you've already been made holy, not because of something you've done, but because of the cross. It also says that you're justified. That means in God's eyes, you are no longer guilty of the thing that you regret. So who are you to hold yourself to a higher standard than even the creator who has forgiven you? Sometimes it helps if you find somebody to confess to. Not a pastor or a priest, but a sister or a brother who's been there. I like to say that it's it's good, I think, for all of us to have at least one friend with whom you have no secrets. So you can go to that person and say, I've blown it. What'd you do? I did this. You're kidding. Well, don't do it again. You know, you have this accountability with someone. So it involves some confession, but it also involves some repentance. It involves changing the way that you approach your life. It's a change of heart and mind. Even in the text that we read a moment ago, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality, which is a word that means to take off in a Usain Bolt kind of sprint away from whatever environment it is that triggers your temptations. Jesus uses the same kind of language in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, hey, if your eye offends you, cut it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. I mean, it's exaggerated language, it's hyperbole, but what is Jesus doing and what is Paul doing by saying it? They're saying whatever it takes to leave the environment that triggers your temptation, leave the environment so that you can live and glorify your bodies. And you say to me, well, Sean, but I've done that. I've been washed, I've been, I've been baptized, I've given my life to Christ, I've confessed, I've repented, and I really have, and I'm doing well, but it's still here. And it's still here. I know. I know that. But it's a shadow. And it's not the real thing. You can't get rid of your shadow. But you can so stand facing the light that the shadow stays behind you. Yes. Maybe today you're hearing my words and you don't know what to do with it, but you feel as if you want to do something with it. Maybe you've never come to a place where you've given your life to Christ. Therefore, you don't know what it means to have been washed or sanctified or justified. All of those are just churchy words that don't mean much. Can I offer you these words that you might borrow to speak them in your own heart, even right this very minute? I would pray, God, there is something in you that is irresistible to me because I sense that you have the capacity to do with my life what I cannot do on my own. 
I recognize that following you means that every decision I make is, well, it's informed by your cross, and I have not always made those kind of decisions, but I want to. I confess to you that I have broken life, and I am broken. And in humility, God, I, I pray that you would forgive me of my, my sins. And I pray that you would show me what it means to be transformed so that my regrets, while they may never leave, they stay behind me. If that's what it means to follow you, Jesus, that I could actually, truly, literally be free, then I am yours right here and right now. Amen. Now, friends, if you prayed that prayer or something like that prayer in your heart and you meant it, you need to know that we want to know that. God has already heard it and you've already been embraced by the grace of God. But it helps to walk alongside a sister or a brother in this journey so that we continue to make decisions that glorify God with our bodies and we don't feel like we're doing this on our own. So we want to know that you've made a decision or you've prayed. So at the end of our service, at, after the benediction, we're gonna have our pastors in each room. Pastor Annie will be here in the sanctuary, Pastor David in the Family Life Center, uh, to come and talk to you after we dismiss to pursue what God may be up to in your life. And if you're at home and you feel compelled to speak, to take a new step in your faith journey, we want you to email us at connect at jcbc.org so that we can meet you exactly where you are and then together take a new and next step in our journey. But for now, now is the time when we move into the rest of this week and we live in such a way that demonstrates we actually believe everything we've affirmed in this place. So wherever you are, and as you're able, would you please stand to your feet? For now is the time to scatter into the world, to be the resurrection for a world of decay and death and hopelessness. And my prayer as you go and embody the resurrection of Jesus, my prayer is that Christ would go before you to prepare your way. That Christ would go behind you in the days that you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step further at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than even a sister or a brother. May Christ go above you on the days when dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word. But may Christ go beneath you, girding you with all forms of, by girding you with peace and removing all forms of fear. But mostly, my prayer for you is that Christ would go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm with his. Go in the grace and peace of Christ. <laughs>